that was up on my desktop. And then it disappeared, but here we are. I want to talk to you today about the most dangerous time of the year, the Yom Kippur time is the most dangerous time of the year. Of course, the greatest danger is not bothering to repent at all. This is especially a peril for those of us who term ourselves God's people, whether we're from the seed of Jacob or from the nations. Being God's people entails towering accountability. Being God's people calls us to a continual process of self-assessment and reorientation, to be the people of God, a people who claims to have been drawn near to him. This requires of us lifelong repentance. To not repent at this time of year may well be an indication that we have fallen asleep in the light. It is not a good thing. It is to take your chances with the judgment of God. It's a form of spiritual Russian roulette. And it's not a good idea. It's a dangerous thing to do. Another danger is that by fasting and sitting through long services, we will imagine that we have paid our dues. But no, we have not. We owe God far more than we can imagine far more than we can ever pay. And it is deadly serious. We cannot pay our dues, and we have not done so. We are, more likely than not, spiritually bankrupt anyway. Another danger is to imagine that by making a slight course correction, or by returning to some level of practice we have been neglecting, like we want to get back to reading the Bible more often, or something like that, thinking that by doing that, we will have done what needs doing. But the passage does not say, pay your dues. It doesn't say inconvenience yourself. It doesn't say return to previous disciplines. It says, return, O Israel, to Adonai your God. But there are so many of us, too many of us, who have barely touched the hem of his garment. We cannot return to where we have never been. For many of us, it's not a question of returning to the Lord our God, but it may be for some of us a question of turning to him for the first time. But most of us have, have turned toward the Lord our God. I'm convinced of that, kinda. But the God of Israel is not a kinda kind of God. He intercepts us. He grabs us by the shoulders. He looks us in the eye and he says, I'm talking to you. Do you hear me? Where are you at, Adam? Where is your brother, Cain? What are you doing with your life, Stuart? So I ask you, I ask myself, to the best of your knowledge, have you ever turned to God? Or do you just like to hang out with religious services and with religious people for one reason or another? The living God is a very bright light in the darkness of our personal world. 
we don't want to really turn toward him because it hurts our eyes or more likely it hurts our egos to do so and even though none of us can see god full on we can't look into his brights too many of us have been satisfied to have him in our dark places illuminating the room so we can see where things are and make our way while at the same time resisting turning towards him any more than is really necessary so that we can just get by. The best some of us do is give a nod to God. The danger is that we have become religious minimalists. We do as little as is necessary. But God wants more from us. No, he demands more from us. He confronts us to tell us that he will settle for nothing less from us than being maximalists when it comes to him. That's why he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. If we take this seriously, people we know, people we love and care about will tell us that we're getting too religious, that we are going overboard, and they will tell others that they are concerned about us. If that isn't happening with us, then it's likely, not sure, but likely that we haven't really turned toward God. Instead, we're minimalists. We've learned how to nod, but not how to bow. The Holy One demands that we love him with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our minds. He demands that we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If giving God our all seems extreme, then we just don't understand the rules of the game, and we are playing a game of our own. Have you ever turned toward God? Have I? And if so, turn to God from what? Because turning implies changing direction from the direction we have been heading, or at least turning to point or to head in another direction. What are we turning from this Yom Kippur season? That's an important question. I'll ask it again. What are you turning from? You can't turn to God unless you're turning from something else. We cannot turn toward God unless we have some sense of what direction, what fascinations, what habits of body and mind we are turning from. If we're not turning from something, then we are not turning toward God. Our, sex, our text says, for you have fallen because of your sin. Some of us like the older brother we heard about in the story of the prodigal son, have always been obedient, disciplined, attentive to God. There are people like that, and we should admire them. But others of us, many of us, and I think all of us at one time or another are like the prodigal. We wake up and find that we are in squalor. 
in trouble in some way, estranged from what we never should have left. And if we are lucky, like the prodigal, we realize that we have fallen because of our sin. So how then? How then shall we turn our lives around at such a time? How shall we turn towards God, the God of Israel, perhaps even for the first time, because for many of us, we may have avoided a real turn to God in the past. How should we turn? What should have been a turn toward the Lord our God of Israel has been nothing much more than a pro forma nod. So it is time to turn because if you don't, there's more stumbling ahead. There's more falling. There's more darkness. There's more estrangement. There's more squalor and not much worth talking about. So how do we return or turn to the Lord our God at this time? The text says, take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all guilt. What does that mean? It means ask for forgiveness. We must be very specific in naming the ways in which we have failed to be the persons we should have been and have succeeded in being the persons we should not have let ourselves become. Let me clarify that for a moment. Here's a good question. Has this been a year for you of becoming more like Yeshua, the Messiah? Whoa, what a question. Or do you perhaps consider yours to have been a good year for other reasons? From God's point of view, there really are no other reasons. The most important thing for you and for me to live for, the most important criterion by which to measure ourselves is this. Am I becoming more like the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, the one who washed the feet of fishermen, who touched and healed the sick, the downtrodden, the outcasts, the one who confronted hypocrisy and religious smoke screens wherever he found them, the one whose food was to do the will of his father. Has this been a year in which we have intentionally been doing the will of God? Someone has wisely said, and I think it was A.J. Heschel, Abraham Joshua Heschel, that life is what we do with God's time. What have we been doing? with God's time. Against such criteria, we must assess ourselves in God's sight. We must name our failures. In the words of the prophet, we must take words with us and return to the Lord and say to him, forgive all guilt. That's the first thing we need to do. The second thing, along with this arduous task of confession, we should ask God to accept what is good. We are not altogether bad, and we should not pretend that we are. We may and should ask God to remember the ways in which we have tried, we have aspired, we have stretched ourselves. Tell him these things too. This is a time of year to assess what is salvageable, Paul reminds himself, let no one think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sound judgment. 
This is expressed perfectly for us by Hosea. Forgive all iniquity and accept what is good. That's sound judgment. We are both bad and good. He goes on to say, instead of bulls, we will pay the offerings of our lips. And that brings us to this third point. Sorry, I'm going to go back right there. We must get serious about change by saying something to God that costs us something. It says, we will pay instead of bulls the offering of our lips. When people sacrifice bulls, that was a very expensive offering. That was hugely expensive, very inconvenient. But we're supposed to give God words that are equivalent to these bulls. We should speak expensive words to God. We need to speak expensive words to God, words that mean something, words that will cost us something. The prophet goes on to say, Asher will not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will no longer call what we have made with our hands our gods, for it is in you that the fatherless find mercy. This means that in addition to speaking expensive words, we must turn from past dependencies. We must name the things we have depended upon instead of God. Sex, money, escapism of various kinds. Drugs, booze, marathon TV or food binging. Maybe you depend upon your ability to feel sorry for yourself. Maybe you depend upon blaming everyone but yourself for everything wrong in your life. It's time for us It's time for us to name those things that have taken the place of our understanding of our undeveloped relationship with God. I just got a note from my, my roadie here. We can't see your face. Well, that's not much of a loss. Let's see. Let's see if I can fix that. Hold on a second. You fixed it. You sat down. I see. Okay. I see. Okay. So, it is time to name those things that have taken the place of our undeveloped relationship with God. We need to say things like, Asher will not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will no longer call what we have made with our hands our gods. For it is in you that the fatherless find mercy. There is another half to this story. Yom Kippur is not only a time of danger, it is also a time of opportunity. Even when we are powerless, without leverage, just as we are without one plea, our hope is in the mercy of God towards those who will truly turn towards him. Whenever we truly turn towards God, we find help. That's good news. We find help and mercy. Our text says, in you, the fatherless or the orphan finds mercy. But we must turn. 
We must recognize the games that we play and stop playing them and instead choose to live by the rules of his game. Here is what he will do with such people. Let me see if I can help you here. Here is what he will do with such people. He says, I will heal their disloyalty. I will love them freely. My anger has turned away from them. I will be like dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily and strike roots like Lebanon. His branches will spread out. His beauty will be like an olive tree and his fragrance like the Lebanon. Again, they will live in his shade and graze grain. They will blossom like a vine and its aroma will be like the wine of the Lebanon. Ephraim will say, what have I to do with idols? And I, I answer and affirm him. I am like a fresh green cypress tree. Your fruitfulness comes from me. So let the wise understand these things and let the discerning know them. For the ways of Adonai are straight and the righteous walk in them. But in them, sinners stumble. I said at the start of this drosh, but this is the most dangerous time of the year for us. And actually, yes, this is only half of the story. The other half is that this is a this time of danger is also a time of astounding opportunity. What is it that will turn this time of danger into a time of opportunity? Hosea told us. He said, Shuvah Yisrael Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled in your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. May you do that this week. May I do that this week. May we all be inscribed and sealed for a good and sweet year. Turn. Thank you very much.